Just Another Monster contains adult themes, violence, and content that may be sensitive to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 4 of Just Another Monster, the show where we shed light on the monsters that live among us. I debated on whether or not I should do this episode. This case is personal to me on multiple levels. The case I'm about to discuss involved someone I knew personally. In fact, all of this took place just a month ago, on July 5th. And not only did it happen to someone I knew, it happened not too far from where I am recording this episode right now. This episode is going to be a little bit different from the last few episodes I've done. Typically, I will spend several hours writing an episode, referencing articles and probable cause documents, along with other legal documents around a specific case. Then, after I finish writing the script, I rehearse it a few times. I make corrections and start the process of mastering and post-production. It's a long and, at times, arduous process. I can see why most people that produce a show of this quality have teams of people working on the show. At this moment, it's basically all me. And I've kind of stuck with a format that works. I am a storyteller, after all, and I try to tell an intriguing story, as grim as they may be at times. But this episode isn't about telling a scary story or sharing a cautionary tale. This episode is about a very important and sensitive subject. It's about an issue that is something I have had personal experience with growing up, an issue I know that close personal friends of mine have not only had to deal with, but have lost their lives because of it. And it's also something that continues to impact millions of people around the world every day. And since the pandemic started, has been exponentially amplified. The issue I am talking about is domestic violence. I know that this is an incredibly sensitive topic for very many people, 
I understand the impact and damage it can have on someone, and I know this personally. So, as a word of caution, if you are easily triggered when it comes to the subject of domestic violence, please, for your own sake, do not continue with this episode. For those of you that are still listening, thank you. I know this is a very sensitive topic, but I feel it is an incredibly important topic to discuss. Later in this episode, you will hear some personal stories from some who have had to experience domestic violence firsthand. So take a moment to yourself, take a deep breath, and let me share a story with you. A story of just another monster. The focus of this show has always been about the victims and the terrible things they have had to suffer at the hands of monsters. When I read over these cases, oftentimes I find that these monsters have had violent histories, previous charges, patterns of behavior, and oftentimes the remnants of a failed system. Sadly, this case is no different. So rather than focus too much on the monster in this case, I want to talk about the victim. Her name was Anna Cristina Dictado Lopez. Her friends knew her as Max. Max was a joyful and loving daughter, a loyal and thoughtful friend. She was only 26 years old, when her life was violently taken away on July 5th, 2021. Max attended Blanchett High School in Seattle, Washington, where she was also part of the school's modern day dance team. I actually hadn't known this about Max. I had friends that attended Blanchett back in the day when I attended its rival Ballard High School about a hundred years ago. Max loved the arts and she had a huge heart for animals, especially her two wiener dogs. But her passion was for the sciences. After graduating from Blanchett High School, she attended the University of Washington's Bothell campus, where she earned her Bachelor of Science degree in biology. While she was attending college, she had also worked as a part-time graphic artist. This girl had so many talents and interests, she was the kind of person that could accomplish anything she set her mind to. After college, Max took a break from school, and I believe she worked as a medical assistant for a bit, but eventually took up bartending with plans to go back to school. It was just better and easier money for her. She became well known in the bar circuit in the Seattle and Eastside region. As it is with most jobs in the service industry, you start to befriend others who also work in the same industry. There's a kind of camaraderie amongst service workers. I was one of them at one point in my life. I always felt it had something to do with all the shitty people and just general fuckery you have to deal with as part of your job. And the fact that it doesn't pay well, and it's a pretty thankless job, I think tends to this kind of bonding. So when you work in the service industry, Many of your friends end up consisting of other bartenders, servers, 
or cooks at other bars and restaurants. This is how I met Max. I knew a lot of people that owned bars in the Seattle and Eastside area. And when you frequent these places, you get to know some of the regulars. Some of those regulars weren't just patrons, but friends of those who worked at these establishments. So I basically met Max by proxy. I had met Max through other friends that I knew that worked in the service industry. Now we never hung out one-on-one, -on -one, but I would run into her from time to time. She was always super sweet, bubbly. She had an infectious smile, a quick wit, an amazing sense of humor to match. She had a lot of personality. We never talked at length about our personal lives, really. She was someone I knew through the bar circuit, basically. Many of these friends weren't people I really spent time with outside of the bar scene. That's just kind of how it was, at least for me. They were bar friends. I worked in a completely different industry at the time. But it was nice to sort of reminisce the good old days of being a service worker, kind of vicariously through the people I knew. And I believe this is also how she met Dylan Scott Jennings. I don't know much about Dylan, other than the fact that he was former military with a specialty in radio operations. He trained in the martial arts, and he was Max's husband. He was a tall, lanky, and very unthreatening 34-year-old man. A kind of a dork, really. He seemed like the kind of person that would fall over if a small breeze blew past him. They apparently weren't married for very long either. From what I could find, he and Max both applied for a marriage license on July 1st, 2019, and then they were married by July 11th, 2019, only about eight months before the COVID-19 pandemic began to take hold of the country. They couldn't have been dating for long either, as I discovered some other legal records pertaining to Dylan Jennings, but we'll get to that in a bit. A little bit of a backstory. During the Christmas week of 2019, I moved to a new city. I needed a new start and a new path, so I thought moving would be a great way to start that process. After I moved, I would go on walks around the neighborhood to get familiar with my surroundings and visit some of the restaurants and bars in the area. One of those places was Sam's Tavern. Now I was familiar with Sam's as a local chain of bars in the surrounding Seattle area. They have amazing wings and has a kind of gastropub feel to it. It was a great place to watch a game or catch up with friends over a pint or two. And they had one in the area that I used to live in, so it was a nice welcome to see a new one just open up in my new city. One day after work, I decided to drop by Sam's Tavern on my way home, and as I walked in, the first person to greet me was Max an old familiar face. I felt at home after seeing her, living in a new city where I didn't really know anyone. It was a nice feeling. After that, I'd pop in at least once a week to watch a football game or just grab a bite to eat. It also became my go-to if I just wanted to call in a quick to-go order because I was too lazy to cook anything. Every time I dropped in or called in an order, it was usually Max handing me my food. Once the pandemic hit just a few months later, everything closed down. And this went on for months. Me being in this new city, not really knowing anyone, and 
Now, any semblance of social life was reduced to text messages, Instagram comments, and toxic Facebook arguments, or even Zoom meetings for work. It was rough. Really, it was a dark period for all of us, and especially for those stuck in toxic and abusive relationships. In fact, domestic violence cases rose over 36% globally, according to the UN, and this has been referred to as the shadow pandemic. In virtually every country, a rise in domestic violence against family members or intimate partners increased by three or four times the annual average. This was due to social isolation and people literally being trapped with their abusers. Now, to give you an idea of what this looks like, according to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, on average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by their intimate partner in the United States alone. During one calendar year, this equates to more than 10 million women and men. One in four women and one in nine men experience severe physical violence, sexual contact violence, and or stalking from an intimate partner with impacts such as injury, fearfulness, post-traumatic stress disorder, and the use of victim services. One in three women and one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. One in four women and one in seven men have been victims of severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. On a typical day, there are more than 20,000 phone calls placed to domestic violence hotlines nationwide. And the presence of a gun in a domestic violence situation increases the risk of homicide by 500%. Now, I want to point out an important distinction here. These statistics reference intimate partner, but specifically refers to female and male genders. I think it is incredibly important to mention that domestic violence is entirely agnostic when it comes to gender or sexual preference. Domestic violence does not discriminate. It does affect some more than others, but it affects all of us nonetheless. It does not care if you are rich or poor, black or white, gay or hetero, non-binary or transgender. Domestic violence stems from aberrant behaviors like a virus that many are not immune to. When I asked people if they wanted to share their own personal trauma and experiences of domestic violence, the responses I received were overwhelming. I received responses from hetero women and men, gay men and women, and others that I know that are non-binary and transgender. So just considering these statistics and knowing that these numbers have increased over threefold during the pandemic, it's absolutely terrifying and gut-wrenching. I cannot even fathom the terror that domestic violence victims have had to suffer, especially during quarantine. Now, eventually, things had started to open up again. After a brief reopening and then a second lockdown, 
we were starting to see light at the end of the tunnel and people were starting to get back to some semblance of a normal life again. Movie theaters were opening up, bars and restaurants were filling up with people again. State mandates were being dropped and things started to feel a bit familiar. Sam's Tavern even opened back up and I saw a familiar face once again, Max. It was nice to see another human face to face again in person. It was also around that time that I started laying down the groundwork for this podcast. I was working long days at my day job and then working even more hours getting this show off the ground. At this point, I had already released the premiere episode, The Mayflower Killer, when I started finalizing the script for the second episode, The Problem Child. This is important because the second episode was the first one where I incorporated the help from voice actors, who are actually some talented friends of mine. On the night of July 5th, I had plans to run through some lines with one of the voice actors I was working with, get those captured for editing, and then call in a to-go order at Sam's for a pickup later. The voice work ran a little long, and as I mentioned, these are friends of mine, so after we finished running lines, we started just shooting the shit and talking about life in general. That's when I happened upon a breaking news story of a shooting in my area. Now, this is not a common thing in my area. It's a rather affluent region of King County, and things like shootings just aren't commonplace. It's the kind of place where you might get a ticket for wearing white after Labor Day, or get a misdemeanor charge for still using last year's iPhone. It sounds a bit ridiculous, but honestly, it's not too far from the truth. I didn't actually read the full article at first when I saw it. Honestly, I, I thought it was an ad for a news website. But when I gave it a second look, I was paralyzed for a moment. I couldn't even properly formulate words. I was kind of in shock because a part of me already knew. The shooting was at Sam's Tavern. Initially, there was no confirmation at first on whether or not it was a patron that was shot during an argument or a drive-by maybe, or even the status of the victim. I eventually got off the line with my friend and instantly started digging into the story. I eventually learned that the person that was shot died at the scene. And the person whose life was taken was Anna Christina Dictato Lopez, known as Max to her friends. The suspect was still at large at the time, but was later apprehended just a few blocks away. He was arrested without incident. The suspect was Dylan Scott Jennings, Max's then estranged husband. The probable cause documents state that Dylan Scott Jennings formulated a plan to murder his estranged wife. He confessed to investigators that he did so because Max started seeing someone else after they separated. Documents show that at around 10.10 p.m. on July 5th, Bellevue police were dispatched to a call of someone being shot at Sam's Tavern. Max's current boyfriend at the time, whose name I am withholding, 
had reported that his girlfriend had been shot by her ex-husband, Dylan Jennings. After police had arrived and attempted life-saving measures, Max died at the scene. Shortly after the initial call, Dylan's brother, Alexander Jennings, called 911 to state that Dylan had just called him and admitting to shooting Max. Alexander had also stated that he just noticed his handgun was missing and was reporting it stolen. Norcom received a separate phone call from Dylan's father, Steve Jennings. Steve was reporting that Dylan had called him while attempting to elude officers on foot. Dylan was eventually located hiding in some bushes by a nearby park just a few blocks away, and as I mentioned, he was detained without incident. Dylan also made some pre-Miranda statements, meaning he made some clear statements prior to being read his rights. Without being asked about the shooting, Dylan told police that he shot Max because she was sleeping with another person, presumably the boyfriend that had just witnessed his girlfriend being murdered. Dylan had stated that he has interior cameras in his home and witnessed the fidelity on his security cameras while he was in the hospital with broken ribs. In a post-Miranda interview with Dylan, he admitted that he had holstered the weapon and rode his motorcycle to the city of Bellevue, and then he parked it at the W Hotel. Dylan stated that he walked several blocks to Sam's Tavern from the W Hotel. He walked into the bar right at closing time and shot Max. When he was being interviewed, he described his actions saying he murdered his wife. He had also admitted to witnessing the infidelity happening while he was in the hospital and it happened during the first week of June. Now, I believe at the time, Dylan and Max had been living in Alexander's garage, which was set up as a sort of secondary residence. Dylan had stated that he had stolen a safe from Alexander's house about a week and a half previous to the shooting. He had used a hacksaw to break into the safe. He had broken into the safe to remove a 9mm firearm and ammunition. Dylan advised that he knew Max's work schedule and that he stole the gun and ammunition with the full intent to kill Max after the 4th of July. When asked why he shot Max and not her boyfriend who was sitting at the bar at the time of the shooting, Dylan responded with, I wanted him to live with it. During the course of the interview, Dylan consistently stated that he murdered his wife and showed little remorse at the time. He even referred to his actions as taking care of business. As I was cross-referencing some of the records I found for Dylan Scott Jennings, the ones I mentioned earlier, it showed that he had a previous felony domestic violence charge against him from March of 2015. These charges included assault in the third degree and unlawful imprisonment. Dylan Jennings was charged with felony domestic violence and unlawful imprisonment. After he threw his then-girlfriend to the ground, and strangled her during an argument, almost to the point of her losing consciousness. The victim in that case reported a long history of domestic violence with Jennings, and she truly believed he would kill her. So this shows that this monster has a previous felony DV charge just four years prior to getting married to Max. And as a felon, 
it is illegal for him to be in any possession of a firearm. It should be noted that during the investigation, as I mentioned earlier, the gun Dylan was in possession of, the one he had planned to use in Max's murder, was stolen from his brother's safe. Dylan was not allowed access to the safe, which his brother Alexander kept in his room. Alexander stated that Dylan did not have permission to possess the firearm and took steps to report the firearm as stolen. At this time, Dylan Scott Jennings is being held on $3 million bail in the King County Corrections Facility. And in more recent developments, pled not guilty to his crimes. Yeah, you heard that right. A trial date is still pending. Now, when I was going over the details of this case, I had to do a lot of digging. I knew Max, but I didn't know her as well as many others did. Max had virtually no social media presence that I could find, and neither did Dylan Jennings. But I was able to find one of her accounts, and what I saw was troubling. In a lot of her posts, you can tell that she felt alone, and that she was struggling. It had even gotten to a point where she stated she was sleeping with weapons at the side of her bed because she feared for her safety. Sadly, these posts were probably never seen by anyone. And so I thought back to my own experiences with domestic violence as a kid. There was a lot of it. I was witness to countless acts of emotional terrorism and physical violence, and I was even on the receiving end of a lot of that terrorism and violence. These weren't isolated events either. It was patterned behavior. And it wasn't just from one parent. As a child of multiple divorces, I had multiple parents and multiple abusers. I've seen hell. I know what it looks like. And luckily, I made it out okay. Unfortunately, many don't. I was lucky. I ran away when I was in my mid-teens and I never looked back. And it made me ask, why did Max not leave or tell someone? Well, honestly, it's not that simple. Abusers are master manipulators. They have that shit down to an art form. They can convince you that it was your fault, or that you deserved it. They even make you question your own reality, question whether or not you remembered things correctly. They falsify everything. And when they are called out, they blame the victim. They isolate their victims, they lie constantly, and they blame their victims for it. Many of them love-bomb their victims to try and resolve issues they caused, only to do it all over again. It is a vicious and toxic feedback loop. Oftentimes, people avoid sharing what they are going through because many people have a tendency to justify toxic behavior. Some will even gaslight the victims and accuse them of making things up. Or they'll make accusations that they are exaggerating events that took place but I don't want you to take my word for it. As I mentioned earlier, I reached out publicly asking people that have gone through this kind of abuse 
if they would be willing to anonymously share their stories. The responses I received were overwhelming. There was no way I could fit all of them into one episode or even two. I spoke with a few who were willing to share their stories. The first serious relationship that I had was with the person who became my husband. So I was my first year of college and um, another red flag, which I know now is a red flag, is that he did a lot of love bombing. I mean, to the extreme, extravagant gifts, um, can, like following me around. And um, I, I guess I thought it was romantic and that he was... Um, showing that he truly cared, you know, and, and uh, I romanticized it. So I kind of allowed, it's not, it wasn't my fault, of course, but I kind of allowed as a, a young person, he was very naive and not experienced in serious relationships. Um, I became kind of, I guess, addicted to this unhealthy behavior that is, is not healthy in a relationship, love bombing. And that's kind of a common pattern of men that I have dated that were abusive. And of course, my husband, um, everything was wonderful and great until our wedding night and um, our wedding night. I had, of course, I have a, a lot of family and friends. I've always I'm a musician, so I've always kind of hung around with guys more than females. And so the majority of my friends are men and um at the wedding, I danced with, you know, they have the thing at a wedding where um, the bride and groom dance, the, the, the bride dances with her father and groom dances with his mother. And then there's like a, a line of people that put money into a hat kind of for the bride and groom. And so all my guy friends and some of my like cousins that are guys all danced with me, not, not figuring it was a big deal at all. But at the end of the night, when everybody was clearing out, my husband grew extremely angry and um, scared me. For the first time, I saw this behavior that was like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde that I, I wasn't used to. And so um, our wedding night, we got into the car to go to hotel and this other dude showed up. <laughs> and apparently my husband had a long time drug problem which he had told me that, you know, he was in the church and he was all, you know, sober and had been for many years, but that wasn't true. He was still addicted to meth. And so this person, he was his dealer, showed up and he told me that I was acting like a whore and that I needed to think about what I had done. And they left and he didn't come back until the next afternoon. And so I basically was alone in this hotel room, terrified, not knowing what was going on or what I had done wrong. Um, the next day he came in and of course was apologizing and he's so sorry and had gifts and then I thought, okay, well, maybe I just did something wrong and everything's okay now. But that kind of was like the catalyst of the beginning of the end with him. Um, he started following me around um, at work. He would just show up if I was working and accuse if I had a, like a customer at the time I was teaching aerobics and he would like accuse me of sleeping with everyone. Um, I had a band and he would show up to practice completely high out of his mind and threatened to kill all my bandmates and just started kind of this stalkerish kind of behavior. And he was extremely angry, extremely violent, 
um, he would just go off the handle and start being physically. Then it got to be a physical abuse type of situation. Um, and the crux after about a year of being married to him and going through the um, very, very angry scenarios, fighting abuse, physical abuse, um, he pulled a gun on me. And it was because a friend of mine came back from college and was visiting and just wanted to hang out. It was nothing sexual or anything weird, but he had made up the scenario in his head that we were sleeping together. And so uh, he pulled a gun on me and I kind of, you know, at that point I was just like, oh my God, he's going to kill me. And so at that point I felt strong enough before this time I was so embarrassed I didn't want to tell anybody I couldn't tell any friends I couldn't tell any of my family and at this point I felt strong enough or desperate enough to reach out to my family and let them know what was going on and so um, I was able to borrow some money from family and to move uh, at the time I lived in Delaware and I was able to move across country here to um, Seattle area where my dad was working for Boeing and I was able to move away. He continued to harass my family and threaten my family and me for years after that, um, to the point that I had to get a restraining order, and which was a big pain in the ass to do. It's bad enough to, to do the process when the person lives near you, but let alone if they're across country. And um, I, you know, I felt like after that point that I was like, okay, I'm, I now know what I'm going to look for and what I'm going to choose. But I continued to be drawn to these men who all of them had some sort of alcohol or drug addiction problem. Many of them were musicians. And so even if it wasn't quite the extent of physical abuse, it was emotional abuse. And I had to end up going to a psychiatrist and, you know, kind of taking a look within why I was allowing certain behaviors that should be red flags that I didn't realize were red flags. So I think um, education is super important. I think it's common for women to feel super embarrassed and not feel comfortable telling anyone. I'm curious, you know, and this seems to be a pretty common theme that I've noticed amongst abusers, but uh, a couple of questions. Did you, did you find that, that, you know, throughout your, your history of being involved with, in these abusive relationships and these abusive men, did you find that possessiveness was always kind of a key element in something that would sort of instigate this abusive behavior in them? I always found that, like, at least for a lot of people I knew, um, the, the men they were with were extremely possessive to the point of isolation. Um, and they would yeah. essentially like generate these, these non-existent scenarios in their mind that they would essentially just almost believe as truths in them or use it as a, an excuse or justification for their behavior. Did you find that was kind of a common theme amongst those that you shared time with? Oh, absolutely. But it was wrapped, Chris, it was wrapped in this love bombing mm -hmm. thing. It was wrapped in um, the 
kind of downplaying of, uh, well, you're just so naive and you trust too many people, which was true. I did. I trusted them, <laughs> but uh, they would kind of use what I knew, uh, what I had as a weakness against me and then wrap it in this romantic love bombing, presents, gifts, um, t- you know, just overly affectionate, overly possessive to, in a way to make me feel as though it was rom- romanticized mm-hmm. instead of crazy. And Chris, all of these men had one thing in common. They were all cheaters. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. As much as they were accusing me of, of, of cheating all the time, yep. they, uh, you know, after the fact, I would find out that they were the ones that were cheating. And I started to, one of the things that, you know, you learn when you're in, when you're either a people pleaser, which I, I, that was another thing that I had to overcome was being a people pleaser. Cause I just wanted to smooth. I even became like, if somebody was arguing and I heard it, it would like trigger this fear in me. And I'd want to just smooth it over. I, I just started becoming this intense people pleasing person so that I could smooth everything over. I felt like it was my responsibility to do that. So that was kind of an after effect of something that happened. Um, but you, you start, you know, one of the first things that you do is you're afraid to tell anyone and you start thinking of ways to blame yourself for what's happening or how you, you're responsible to make it stop. And one of the things, once I kind of got a little bit of a hint that he was back doing drugs is that I would notice that his eyes would literally shake. And maybe that's something to do with meth. I don't know, but his eyes would like shake in his head, almost like he was possessed or something. And then I knew, you know, something bad was going to happen when his eyes would do that. Did you find that when, when you started to notice that, um, you did you find yourself going into sort of this protective mode to like be able to make sure that you didn't do anything that set him off yes or okay okay okay, yep yep. definitely whatever i could do to smooth it over i mean i literally when he pointed the gun at me i literally was like talking so much like you know whatever you want you know we'll get we'll get help we'll get counseling what what is that, you know, that's making you upset? Why are you angry? And are like totally showering him with this affection and love that he obviously, you know, for whatever reason was uh, this twisted need in him um, to gain that power over me. And I found that the best way to kind of calm him down was to be completely submissive. For those who might be listening to this show, and might be in an abusive situation themselves currently. What what kind of advice would you give them? What would you what would you tell them? Um, well, I would definitely say to try to find some space, some time when that person is not around to go and to, to talk to someone. To whether it's to look up, you know, Google. I mean, now we have Google. We we didn't have none of that shit back in the nineties, you know. Yeah. So to to look um, for some of these places that um, you know, as, tied to the county, to the state, to uh, the city, 
City of Tacoma has some great programs, um, and I'm, I'm sure that Seattle does as well. But um, to start searching for those things and to reach out, um, I think the main fear, is, especially if you're living with that person, like your finances are tied in with that person, your furniture. I had to, I had to leave my dog, you know, mm-hmm. with him. Um, so sometimes there's children, you know, it's it's messy and it's terrifying to think. You, you feel like all of this is on your shoulders to figure out and there's fear, of course. So um, having uh, some sort of organization or church or um, even strong friends that have your back or family, um, having that support system is crucial because I, I don't personally know of anybody who's ever been able to get out of a situation all on their own. And I know some friends, I had a, a friend um, in the Seattle area, um, I think it was a year or two ago that passed away, the same, same reason, domestic violence that was um, pretty popular in the Gothic industrial scene, which um, my band is in. And um, I know that she always would say that she felt alone. Like she felt like she didn't have a lot of friends. So, you know, of course we all were afterwards, we're like, gosh, you know, maybe she felt like she didn't have anybody really to talk to. And so that is, you know, that to me is my biggest fear for other, other people that are going through this is that they feel alone. And like, this is so overwhelming and, you know, so like they don't have anywhere to go, nowhere to turn to, no one to talk to, no one that will protect them. Mm And that I understand that feeling is is terrifying and overwhelming. It is, and and that's the thing too. Like, um, and I, I've I've told this to my friends as well in regards to, that are in situations and they feel that they're they're stuck, that they can't get out because their finances are tied together. They have, yep. you know, I told them, look, those things can be fixed over time. Like, yes. those you can address these things at a later time. These are not things that need to be worked out right this minute. Your yep. your health and your safety is paramount. It is more important than anything else. It's more important than your furniture and your bank accounts. You can, if you have the resources, use them, get out before it becomes too late. I want to extend a special thank you to those who are willing to share their stories with me and the listeners of this show. I know it takes a great deal of courage to be able to open up, relive some of these experiences and share them with the world. I cannot thank you enough for your willingness to share. I can only hope that anyone who might be listening to this show that is going through this right now will gain the courage to get out. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. As I mentioned before, I couldn't fit all of them into one episode. So I will be doing a follow-up episode where I share more stories from the courageous people who are willing to do so. I wanted to end this episode with something Max had written and was shared in her obituary. 
Do we have to constantly live up to our expectations? Sometimes we think of them as goals for ourselves, something to strive for. Yet those expectations may spiral out of control and damage who we truly are. Nobody and nothing would be the same if we couldn't live up to them. And if people judged us for not being able to. Written by Anna Lopez. May she rest in peace. Thank you for listening to Just Another Monster. I know this was probably a difficult episode to listen to, so if you made it this far, I appreciate you. If you or someone you know is currently suffering from a domestic violence situation, please contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE or 1-800-799-7233. You can also visit www.thehotline.org. You can also visit the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence at ncadv.org for additional resources. Also, if you would like to share a story of your own or just reach out and comment on this episode, please feel free to call and leave a voicemail at 520 520- 428-4373. Any stories you share will remain anonymous. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. And remember, if you see something, say something. I'll see you next time.